Editor's Introduction The title, The Church-Friendly Family, is quite purposeful. The authors wish to emphasize a particular vision for families, a vision grounded in a biblical sociology. In fact, it is an old vision declared throughout the Church and the Reformation which needs to be reasserted. The vision is to call fathers and mothers to exercise their parental duties within an ecclesiastical paradigm. By God's grace, we have seen a joyful shift over the years in many of our churches. We have rightly reconsidered program-saturated churches and found them wanting. Though not intentionally, these churches have dismantled the family by separating family members. Worship, which is fundamental to familial maturity, has been dispensed in crumbs, and what is eaten is largely unsatisfying. The Psalms, Yahweh's inspired songbook, are filled with the language of death, There is agony and uncertainty through many of Israel's songs. See Psalm 6, 32, 38, 51, 102, 130, and 143. But these same psalms conclude on a different note, one of relief, renewed trust, and rest. The uncertainty was only the first step in the long journey from infancy to maturity. The Future of the Family The Psalms symbolize the triumph of God the Father through the death and resurrection of the Son. There is inherent in psalmic theology a death-resurrection theme. In fact, this theme is fundamental to understanding a redemptive history. History tells us of the death of old empires. These empires died so that a new and indestructible empire might arise. Evil kings died so that a new and righteous king might arise. The old man died to make room for a new man. The old Adam must die, so a new Adam could rise and bring healing to the nations. Through the final Adam, the nations will come and feast. Through his resurrection, the great congregation and brotherhood of saints will sing the praises of Yahweh. It is my contention that the biological family will taste of the glorious future only after it dies and is raised anew. The natural family needs to be torn apart and divided by God's two-edged sword. The family needs to live the messianic life of abandonment, so that it may live the messianic life of glory. This is what Jesus means when he says, Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Matthew 10.39 The family must undergo a theology of the cross before it can experience the theology of glory. Biblical Priorities, Death and Change Death was the consequence of Adam's autonomous decision in the garden. Death is the end result of rebellion. Our biblical priorities will determine whether or not we wish to follow Adam's path. The family also is faced with a similar question if it wishes to grow into wisdom. If we truly believe in maturation into biblical priorities, then we must be prepared to reconsider the future of the family. Is it following the Adamic pattern, or is it forming for itself a new pattern of thinking? The Family and the Church The 16th century Reformation began to restore marriage in the home. Years of religious and cultural immorality began to see a new day through Martin Luther. The German reformer once wrote, I urge matrimony on others with so many arguments that I am myself almost moved to marry. Shortly after, Luther married Catherine von Bora. Centuries of negative writings on women were reversed, or better, reformed, through Luther's marriage. One scholar explains how Luther lived his life. Luther's faith 
was simple enough to trust that after a conscientious day's labor, a Christian father could come home and eat his sausage, drink his beer, play his flute, sing with his children, and make love to his wife, all to the glory of God. The Reformation reformed the individual family. It gave it a new identity. But the Reformation also maintained its biblical priorities. It restored the family, but it did not exalt the family above all institutions. It would have been easy to do, since the church was deeply corrupt. The reformers could have said, let's end the institutional church and place the individual family as supreme. But this is not what the reformers did. The reason the Reformation did not exalt the biological family was because the Reformation knew that only one family held God's ultimate affection. The Reformation knew that only the Jerusalem above, the eternal family, which will never perish and which is our true mother, as Cyprian wrote, and John Calvin echoed, you cannot have God as father unless you have the church as mother. Paul affirms this in Galatians 4, and the Westminster Confession affirms this when it says that outside the church, the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ, the house and family of God, there is no ordinary possibility of salvation. Calvin viewed the work of the church the work of exercising the keys to the kingdom as the supreme act of God in this world. The church was to Calvin a sacred institution that was dearest to the heart of God. As Gary North once wrote, history moves from the Adamic family of man in the Garden of Eden towards the adopted family of God in the city of God, the New Jerusalem. The biological family begins to embrace this eschatological view of the scriptures when it embraces the narrative of the Church of Christ as God's true, central, and eternal family. The Church as God's Weapon The Church is God's greatest masterpiece. It is not a man-made institution. It is the creation of God the Father, Son, and Spirit. It is the fiery weapon that God uses to pierce the hearts of men. The Church is made new by the Pentecostal fires of Acts 2. She is the undoing of Babel. Whereas in Babel, God separated the families of the earth, in the church, Christ brings the nations of the earth together to form one holy and undivided family. Mark Horn observes that in the church, men and women are called upon to be separated from their natural identities as members of race and class and be given a new spiritual identity by being added to the body of Christ in baptism. The inescapable conclusion is that if you are united to Christ, you must be united to Christ's church. The spirit that creates new life in the believer is the spirit that unites the people to Christ's bride. Our modern culture has been taught to trivialize the church and to treat her as a second-class citizen in the kingdom of God. We generally agree that the church is important, but an answer filled with skepticism arises when we ask, is it essential for the well-being of Christ's kingdom? We must affirm the supremacy of the church among all the spheres and institutions of human life by placing ourselves within the life and mission of the church. This is not an easy step, but it is a necessary step, a step that crucifies the old way of thinking. Who controls the world controls the future. In the world, whoever has primacy over all spheres rules the world. Christ very clearly placed the church as the primary keeper of the mysteries and wisdom of the gospel. Paul cherishes this idea so much that in Ephesians he writes that 
through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Ephesians 3.10 What is most important in the eyes of God will control the future and will affect everything around it. The failures of the state and family are a result of the failures of the church to properly accomplish her mission. The church's primacy over all earthly institution teaches the family unit to look to the church as God's primary headquarters, since the church is the true family of God. God adopts individuals from every tongue, nation, and people. He adopts orphans and widows into a family where there are no orphans and widows. In the family of God, widows find a faithful husband in Christ, and brothers and sisters can never be separated because they are adopted into an inseparable family. In the church, there is no incomplete family. In God's family, there is no divorce because Christ is eternally bound to his bride. It is a legitimate endeavor, and one that God honors, when we strengthen our own families with family worship, with love, and with deep relationships with one another. But in the words of Gary North, any attempt to strengthen the family without also strengthening the institutional church is self-defeating for Christians. We need to consider our actions within our individual families in terms of how they will strengthen the Church of Christ. Should we give our children an explicitly Christian education? Unquestionably. Do we do it only because we will produce better theologians and better citizens of the state? No. We do it because it will produce better worshipers of Yahweh in the church. Should we have family worship regularly in our homes? Unquestionably. Do we do it only because it unites us as a family member? No. We do it because it will produce better worshipers in God's gathered assembly. This is the outlook we need to adopt if we are to think biblically about the future and conform ourselves to the counsel of God. The church is the center of God's world. The church, as possessor of truth and possessor of the mysteries of God, demonstrates to the world that unless they join her, they will perish. The mission of the church is the heart of God's mission for the world. And since the future of the natural family is not based on the centrality of the natural family, but on the centrality of God's new cosmic and supernatural family, then the future of the individual family is a future found in the church. The family must die so that it may be raised to a new status, so that it may embrace the glorious and eternal family of the church. But how can this changing of priorities take place? Is this simply theological nitpicking? On the contrary, I believe it has serious consequences for the way individual families think and live. First, because the church is at the center of God's affections does not mean that God does not love the family. The family is important in God's plan of redeeming the world. However, the family fulfills its role when it conscientiously aligns itself with the mission of the church. For the family to isolate itself from the church is self-destructive. It must join God's new creation family, the family which was birthed by the Spirit. Secondly, We need to abandon any individualistic tendencies we may have. We are a corporate body. We are given gifts, as St. Paul says, to care for one another, 1 Corinthians 12.25. This implies a rich understanding of fellowship and community. We must embrace this ecclesiastical culture in full. We are called to embrace this new society, to embrace its culture and rituals, learning to feast, and to build one another up in strength and holiness. Third, 
Changing our priorities means living the life of accountability within the church. It means living in light of Matthew 18, and in light of the potential for apostasy and discipline. If a father has trained his family to think that discipline happens only within the family, he has failed in his job. But if a father teaches his family that he is accountable to his elders and pastor, then the family realizes that even the father is not above the law. There is a greater punishment than being punished by the family. It is the punishment of excommunication. The church's authority to excommunicate is the most fearful sanction in history. Finally, the nuclear family is the instrument God has established to support his greatest joy, the church. Thus, the family incorporated into the church serves for the sake of the world. It is involved in the process of bringing in other families to join in the great cosmic family of God. The family needs to be reborn into the new Jerusalem above. It needs to assume its responsibility as part of a new creation body. It must be crucified so it can be raised into a new perspective on life. The family comes to the Lord's Day liturgical celebration to die and to be raised into God's new adopted family. The family loses its identity in the congregation of the righteous and takes on a new identity. Peter Lightheart describes the transformation that occurs when God's people gather for corporate worship. Quote, Many of you came here as families, but during this hour, the borders of your family dissolve and you come before the Lord as a single family. That liturgical dissolution of the family is not permanent. It is a moment of renewal. Like all deaths, the ritual death of your individual family in the liturgy is a step towards resurrection. After you have gathered here as the single household of faith, gathered at this one table, you disperse to your separate homes and tables, renewed by the assembly in God's house, by God's word, by God's food. End quote. After dying, being raised, and then incorporated into this glorious family, we can see the future of God's kingdom through new eyes, the eyes of a united church, a church established for God's glory, which shall never perish. May these essays embolden us for the work of the Church, and may our families join and delight in her mission. Yuri Brito, Pentecost Season, 2012